As new waves of COVID-19 sweep around the world, local lockdowns are being imposed. But it is now clear that the economic and social disruptions and the harm to mental health that come with lockdowns are taking an enormous toll. In the absence of a vaccine or effective treatments, experts are wondering if there is a way to strike a better balance. Hello and welcome to Babbage from Economist Radio, our weekly podcast on technology and science. I'm Kenneth Kukier, a senior editor at The Economist. And on today's show, scientists clash over whether COVID should be left to spread freely among the young and healthy. And America's Department of Justice takes on Google. We search for the meaning of this case for big tech. First up, in response to fresh waves of COVID-19, this week restrictions have tightened across Europe. For a period of six weeks, the entire country will move to level five of the framework for living. Britain is divided over the issue. Limited firebreak. A short, sharp shock. Close contact economy as proposed for closure. A three-tiered system of local COVID alert levels in England. Around the world, scientists are trying to find the best way to manage the public health and societal trade-offs. But it's a contentious issue. On October 6th, a trio of public health experts from Harvard, Oxford, and Stanford universities released a petition calling on governments to change strategy in a radical way. The Great Barrington Declaration is a document that came about from a meeting between myself, Martin Kulldorff, and Joe Patacharya. So the three of us met because we had quite independently arrived at what we thought might be a better solution to the current problem that's facing us. Sinetra Gupta is a professor of theoretical epidemiology at the University of Oxford and a co-author of the Great Barrington Declaration, which advocates the looser approach. We felt that given the enormous costs of lockdown, the best available option for us to minimize the impact of the pandemic was to rely upon some of that task being performed by population level immunity, which means that the pandemic would be allowed to spread among those who are not vulnerable to its devastating effects, while keeping those who are vulnerable shielded from those effects. So how would this work practically? So the first thing to remember is this would be a temporary situation. So over a period of three to six months, we would have to shield the vulnerable. That does not mean lock them away. In fact, I think what happened in the previous lockdown here was terrible in that regard. It may have saved several lives, maybe, but, you know, the people who were locked into the care homes and not allowed to see their relatives, that was all really dreadful. In the community, again, for a period of three to six months, grandparents would need to try and stay away from their grandchildren or see them under circumstances that didn't hugely increase their risk of being infected by them. And this could be done very carefully and thoughtfully. And then we come to multi-generational households. Some of these multi-generational households are ones in which the vulnerable inhabitants can actually isolate within the family home. And then there are other situations 
which are absolutely ghastly, where a lot of people are living in one room across generations. What we then have to do is think of solutions which are not palatable, such as asking the vulnerable people to be removed to perhaps some location, a hotel or someplace, again, for a temporary period. This is totally awful, an awful suggestion to have to make. But what we have to do is balance this against the costs of lockdown, which are so profound as to be unspeakable. Now, a lot of the presumption in the Great Barrington Declaration is that there is a cohort of people that are vulnerable and they're identifiable. But hearing Dr. Fauci in America speak about it, he criticizes it and he says that one third of Americans have a sort of have a comorbidity or a precondition of some sort. And that rings true to me. I mean, I have asthma. Uh, and I'm in my 50s. My producer is 23 years old, uh, and he's diabetic. What happens to us? I also have asthma, and I'm in my 50s. Um, I don't actually consider myself to be um, so vulnerable as to not go out there and teach my students face-to-face, which is what I'm about to do. So I think there are, of course, degrees of vulnerability, and that's a very good point. I think that needs to be characterized more carefully. So I don't think someone who's 23 and has diabetes, I think there's enough work that's been done now to show that someone who's 23 and has diabetes is not at a high risk. So I would recommend that he continue his activities as normal. You and I, you know, we can think about it. Some things we should maybe avoid, maybe not go to the opera like we were planning to do just over those three to six months. It's not a big sacrifice. So I think people need to put it into perspective. But most importantly, what needs to happen is the experts need to sit down and discuss it. I will stress again and over and over again, that the context here is the enormous cost of the lockdowns. It's not about whether we can do this and shouldn't we just suppress the infection instead. So none of these measures is easy or can just be implemented. It would be unfair to say that, oh, this is just an easy solution here. This is also a very difficult solution. It's just given the costs of lockdown, we are faced with very few alternatives at the moment. Now, a lot of the argument hinges on a dimension that you've mentioned already, which is this idea of a natural herd immunity. But it seems like we don't have enough evidence to determine the degree to which there is a herd immunity or not. And it seems like from other coronaviruses and what we're already seeing is there is not a natural immunity. I think that's very unlikely that there isn't. Where do the numbers from coronaviruses come from? They come from studies on coronaviruses that have been conducted. So these are studies that show you how often you get reinfected with the other four circulating seasonal coronaviruses. I don't think any immunologist would agree that there is no immunity to coronavirus. We've all, including my lab, have been working on this and we can detect neutralizing antibodies, T cells, IgA, you name it. There's a whole arsenal of immune responses against coronavirus. I think the baseline expectation should be that this immunity would be similar to what we see for other coronaviruses, which is clearly sufficient to keep the risks of these coronaviruses low enough that we agree to live with them. But other scientists disagree and say it's too early to tell. On October 14th, a group of health experts published a rebuttal to Professor Gupta and her colleagues. What's become clear lately is that like other coronaviruses, it's very likely that there is 
no long-term immunity against COVID-19 infection, which really brings into question this idea that's been promoted about herd immunity. Deepti Gurdasani is an epidemiologist at Queen Mary University of London. And there is historically no such disease where natural infection across a population has led to essentially the end of the disease. Dr. Gurdasani co-authored an open letter called the John Snow Memorandum, named after the 19th century father of epidemiology, and it was published in the medical journal The Lancet. It wasn't just a response to the Great Bankton Declaration, but rather a scientific consensus on COVID-19 and what we need to do about it. It does respond to the Great Bankton Declaration as well, and there is a lot wrong with that. What are your criticisms of it? First and foremost, the cost of letting a pandemic like COVID-19 run wild across a population. And while the infection fatality ratio is much higher in vulnerable populations and the elderly, it can also lead to a large number of deaths among young individuals. Apart from that, it's also become clear recently that people who get infected with SARS-CoV-2, a proportion of them tend to develop long-term complications. So about 10% or so may have long-term health problems that may last for over three months. What about shielding the most vulnerable? Is this possible? We don't exactly know who's vulnerable to COVID at the moment, but if we look at those people who are at risk of severe COVID-19, these can be between 20 and 30% of a population. So if we talk about protecting or compartmentalizing 30% of the population, which in itself is unethical, how would one go about doing that? And despite their best efforts, we know very well that this inevitably spreads to others, including vulnerable people, and ultimately always results in increases in hospitalizations and deaths. There is not a single country that has succeeded in completely compartmentalizing or shielding or protecting the vulnerable individuals in the population despite their best efforts. Some health experts say that the John Snow Memorandum is too pro-lockdown, which itself is damaging to society. So what would you say to those critics? Uh, the Great Bankton Declaration appears to create this sort of dichotomy between lockdowns and letting the infection drip. Public health experts over the world are not advocating lockdowns. Lockdowns are essentially an emergency break on infection and reflect a failure of public health strategy. They are essentially a last resort. And after the first series of lockdowns in many countries, the idea was essentially to bring cases down to a level where they could be controlled with robust public health strategies like widespread mask use, good public communication, and good case detection and contact tracing and isolation systems, as they have done in in a lot of Southeast Asia and the Pacific. The time that was bought by lockdown early on during the pandemic, so during March, April, and May, was not used to shore up systems, good public health systems like find, test, trace, isolate, and support. And as a result of that, we were not able to actually control community spread once it came down using these strategies. So what should governments do now? There is no other approach that will work apart from putting restrictions in place once again to bring cases down to a level that they can be dealt with by development of good case detection and contact tracing systems, as well as social and economic support for people so that they can isolate and comply with regulations, which is really not happening now. It seems like what you're saying is that restrictions have to be in place until we get a vaccine. But you told me earlier that we're not sure about immunity to COVID-19. Does that mean that a vaccine might not be long-lasting? 
So there is kind of a conflation between naturally acquired herd immunity and vaccine acquired immunity. Vaccine acquired immunity can be very different from naturally acquired immunity. One, because vaccines use certain agents called adjuvants. So we often have a much stronger immune response to vaccines than to natural infection. We can boost the immunity with boosters so that the immunity is is much longer term than with natural infections. And now I kind of understand why a lot of people are kind of siding with the whole Great Barrington Declaration thing, because the idea is, oh, if herd immunity doesn't exist, then vaccines are not useful, which is really not how it works for any disease at all in the world, actually. You know, vaccines are really the only way to eradicate diseases. But Professor Gupta and those that support the Great Barrington Declaration say that we can't wait that long, that there's too much at stake. The reason these conversations are happening like this and going around in circles is because there hasn't been sufficient acknowledgement of the enormous harm caused by lockdown. I'm talking about globally, 130 million people starving to death. I'm not talking about, oh, it's a bit inconvenient that we can't see grandma or go to the pub. I'm talking about people dying from cancer, from heart disease, because they can't access the health care system. I'm talking about people dying of suicide. I'm talking about if the costs of lockdown were not so enormous, I think we'd have many more choices, actually. Online, the dueling petitions have each gathered thousands of signatures from scientists around the world. And the contest over COVID-19 management strategies is being debated in areas outside of science by politicians and economists and the public. We should definitely take the Great Barrington proposal under consideration. Slavea Chenkova is the Economist healthcare correspondent. But at the same time, we should acknowledge that it is an idea that is backed up by assumptions for which we don't have evidence yet. And there is a high likelihood that some of their assumptions are, are just plain wrong. And that's the real danger. We don't know how immunity works with this disease. Slavea, it's a risky strategy, but as Professor Gupta told us, between risk and reward, it could work. It is, of course, a very high risk strategy. By some estimates, half or more of people need to be infected to to reach the herd immunity threshold. Although COVID-19 is quite mild for most people who got infected, it is very deadly for some, and that includes some people who are middle-aged, not just the elderly. In Britain, for example, we saw that at the peak of the first wave, mortality for people between the ages of 45 and 65 was 80% higher than usual. Also, some people just don't recover, even if they had a very mild form of the disease. The latest estimate just published today is that One in 20 people are not back to normal eight weeks after they've become infected. So that may seem, you know, like a small number, but if you have this just ripping through the population, it will add up to lots of people. For a country the size of Britain, that could be hundreds of thousands of people. If herd immunity could be achieved, then the Great Barrington Declaration would make more sense. But at this point, with the gaps in knowledge we have, it is a highly risky proposition. Sylvia, are two online petitions the way that a complex health policy should be decided, or are they just spurring activists on both sides? No, online petitions are definitely not the way to go about making policy decisions. It shouldn't be whoever gets the more signatures one way or another. Policy should be driven by the evidence. 
But we don't have that yet, and we're seeing infections rip through Europe and rise in America. How should governments proceed to control the pandemic right now? Every country will be doing it in a different way. What measures you can take also depends on what the local population will agree to. We see that there is pandemic fatigue everywhere now. So really what every country should be doing, and that's what you know they should have done in the first place, is invest in local responses. So beef up local public health departments, which really know the local context. They know what's the best way to curtail the epidemic locally. And that's really the answer. Test, trace and isolate. And lockdown policies are your alternative. Slavia Chenkova, thank you very much. Thank you, Ken. The pandemic is having a major impact on mental health, too. This week on our sibling podcast, The Economist Asks, Anne McElvoy talks to Brene Brown, a research professor at the University of Houston who spent the past two decades studying human behavior. Anne asks her about the mental health impact of focused lockdowns of the elderly and vulnerable, as the Great Barrington Declaration suggests we do. I miss my parents so desperately. And so making the decision with my husband that our kids can go back to school because they're distanced, they're masked at school, they're on kind of this weird hybrid, half the kids go and half the kids don't. But when we made that decision because we felt it was for the best for our children, we made a decision that our family would no longer be able to be around my parents. Check out the podcast, The Economist Asks, every Thursday on your podcast app. Just search for Economist Radio. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Need a quick answer to a question like, who is Charles Babbage? Google it. And if you're on an iPhone, it's hard to see any other way to find the information. This week, the U.S. Department of Justice launched a long-awaited suit against Google. But instead of a broad case looking at its dominance in search, such as results that favor its own services as regulators in Europe worry about, the DOJ's case is narrow. It scrutinizes the company's search engine and advertising presence on mobile phones such as paying Apple over $8 billion a year to make it the default on iPhones. The DOJ claims Google's practices are anti-competitive. Google says that paying for product placement is a common business practice and denies wrongdoing. It's the most important antitrust action in the United States in two decades since the Microsoft case. Vijay Vaithaswaran is the U.S. business editor of The Economist. Many critics are disappointed that it's such a narrow case, but... I think it's a shrewd strategy on the part of the Department of Justice because it makes the case stronger by focusing on where the evidence is strongest. They did not go after the many things that critics claim 
the big tech companies are guilty of, election manipulation, self-dealing in their search results to favor their own services over that of rivals or uh, other sorts of ills, privacy issues. They went specifically after search and within that, a certain kind of search, text-based search, not videos, not images, where, for example, companies like Pinterest may be a rival or uh, uh, even YouTube, a division of, of Google would be involved. They didn't go after, for example, product-based search, where Amazon is now dominant. They went after the general search, who is Babbage or when was Marco Polo born? And that makes it much more focused. And they went after a specific aspect of how Google dominates that search, and that is agreements that it has with distributors like Apple, which makes uh, iPhones and other devices, or the companies like Samsung and others that make Android devices. And those primary platforms to get their product out to consumers are ones where Apple, Samsung, and others enter into agreements that favor Google's products, its search engine, and give them prime placement as the default choice. Now, can I infer that Google is completely innocent of any other infractions, or is it because the DOJ is trying to do a step-by-step approach, making a win on a small, narrow area so that they can then build the muscle to fight them on a larger area? Uh, First of all, Google insists it's completely innocent. So you can infer that if you accept Google's position. If you take the DOJ's position or that of, let's say, antitrust experts who are critical of Google, this could very well be a camel's nose under the tent. That is, it's a beginning of a number of unpleasant things that may come down the pike for Google. For example, uh, there are, in addition to the Department of Justice, which is the federal law enforcement agency in America, uh, states have the right to bring these sorts of antitrust cases. 11 American states joined the Department of Justice this week in this case, but many others say that they may join in a few weeks and their attack on Google on antitrust may be much broader than what we've already seen. So this could be coming very soon after the presidential election that's coming up shortly. And we may yet see other kinds of antitrust action as well, either as part of this case or as separate cases. Now, what is Alphabet, Google's parent company's response to the case? The response from Google's management and its lawyers is that they are completely blameless, that There's nothing wrong with offering a fantastic product that consumers prefer over inferior rivals and to make it readily available. And they use, for example, uh, the supermarket analogy. They say toothpaste companies and uh, cookie manufacturers regularly pay for good product placement at the end of the aisle so that we're more likely to pick up their brand rather than a competitor's. And devices, be that iPhones or or Android-based handsets, are no different than supermarkets. They simply want to give us an easy way to get to their wonderful product. Google insists that consumers are not forced to use their product, and it's easy to switch. You can switch easily to Bing or Yahoo, and there's no barrier to entry to any new search competitors either. Now, the DOJ has anticipated this. What is their response? The Department of Justice argues that, in fact, Deals that have been struck to get the kind of placement for Google's product, in this case, it's a signature search engine, actually represent the actions of a monopolist that uses its uh, resources to to block access to the uh, products, in this case, again, Google search. And the sums involved are staggering. If it were not so valuable to a dominant company, they argue, Google would not pay Apple something between 8 to $12 billion a year in the advertising revenues that it 
earns on iPhones and other mobile devices in order to ensure that its search engine is the default on Apple devices. Why would anybody pay that kind of money if it wasn't a very valuable edge against competitors? So what do you think are the likely outcomes of the case? It's possible that Google could win. Google uh, has an army of lawyers and they make the argument that they have a terrific product and there's lots of evidence to suggest that Google is not only a very good search engine, that it may be the best search engine and certainly the one that consumers around the world tend to prefer, even where they're confronted with Bing as their default search engine, consumers typically ask about Google and try to switch to it. And for that reason, they have a strong argument that they make a terrific product and therefore uh, they're not forcing anybody. And the cost of switching are not that great. With a couple of keystrokes or taps on your mobile device, you can use any other uh, rival product that you like. That's their argument. So they may persuade a jury that they're correct. Now, there is another outcome, uh, and that is that they may very well uh, lose but face, let's say, a, a fine that looks big in the billions, but is trivial compared to their market value and annual profits. And they may be asked to make some sorts of behavior modification that don't really change their business very much, that end up being cosmetic. And that's a very plausible outcome as well. Who's likely to benefit from the case? This is a tough question. It's hard to say Google benefiting, uh, although you could take a long-term philosophical view and say that monopolists tend to get fat and lazy and uh, a challenge like this might help Google to stay fit. People who think like this suggest that Microsoft, for example, which suffered for years and years of distraction and legal costs and management preoccupation with the antitrust case that was brought against it 20 years ago, they missed the transition to mobile in many ways and became much less innovative. But they have emerged now to become a formidable and innovative company after that period of time. I don't subscribe to this particular theory, but it is a theory that argues that um, a monopolist or certainly a company with monopoly sorts of behavior gets fitter, behaves better, stops acting in some lazy ways and turns inward and emerges stronger. That's plausible. It's possible, I guess. I think, on the other hand, it's more likely that other competitors that we don't even know about yet, it may not necessarily be Bing or DuckDuckGo, the, the current obvious competitors, but there may be new sorts of disruptive innovators coming along who now see an opportunity that because Google is under a microscope and, and may not, let's say, go and acquire companies in what's been called the kill zone, the areas of innovative activity among upstarts that may threaten the profits of an incumbent. They may be reluctant to mess with a, a rising upstart. It may give them more room to expand and to challenge Google in an interesting way. So that might be one of the beneficiaries. Now, what is clear, at least, is that the U.S. government has acted against big tech. So does this mark the beginning of the end? In terms of what it symbolizes, should Facebook and Amazon be scared? If this is the beginning of the end of big tech's run without antitrust scrutiny, it has certainly started with a whimper, not a bang. This case is narrow. This case is quite focused. It's uh, one part of one business arm of one of the big tech companies. But having said that, if it has a better chance to succeed than other antitrust efforts around the world, for example, in Europe, which has been very active in chasing Google, but thus far has not modified its behavior very much, nor reduced its market dominance very much, if it is actually more successful, then I would argue that yes, this could mark the beginning of an end 
of a couple of decades in which the big Silicon Valley companies rose without much fear of regulation from either Democratic or Republican administrations in Washington. Vijay, thank you very much. It's a great pleasure, Ken. Thank you. You can read more on all the stories in Babbage and much more at economist.com. So go to The Economist and subscribe today. For your best introductory offer, go to economist.com slash podcast offer. That's economist.com slash podcast offer. And one final request. While you're with us, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. I cannot stress enough how important that is, because by having more reviews and more five-star reviews, more people will come across the podcast and become listeners, and the Babbage community will expand. I'm Kenneth Kukier, and in London, this is The Economist. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.